Father in heaven, we come before you. And we thank you for the opportunity to come here and to stop and recognize that you are God. So, Father, regardless of the changes that are coming here in this church and in our lives individually and the different struggles and challenges we face, we thank you for your promise to meet us here. So we invite you, Father, each of us individually to speak to our hearts, that you would shine your light on our hearts and on our lives, and that you would show us how to worship you, how to love you, how to trust you, how to give you all that we have, because you have given us all that you are. We invite you to speak to us today, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever seen a really enthusiastic fan? What is the craziest amount of fandom that you have ever seen? Is it last night when there were all of these people lined up in Chicago for three hours in the freezing rain waiting for Beyonce's concert? I can't imagine standing outside for hours in the rain just to listen to Beyonce play. I've heard the craziest stories of fandom, but perhaps my first encounter with really, really enthusiastic fans was on June 25, 2009. Does anyone know what happened June 25, 2009? I was here in San Diego and I was coal portering and I was going door to door. And when you're a coal porter, a literature evangelist, someone uh, who is selling books, particularly Ellen White books and Christian books, um, and you're gaining a scholarship for college, one thing that's interesting about that experience is that you don't really, uh, you don't use your cell phones, you don't go online, you don't listen to the news, so you're kind of completely unaware of what's going on in the world. But that day on June 25, as I was going door to door, I noticed something really weird. In the afternoon, there were all these people who, when they would open the door, they had tears in their eyes. And when you go to someone's house, you never really know what you're going to encounter. Really, you really never know what you're going to encounter when you go to someone's house. You don't know if they're going to, you know, be wearing all their clothes, or if they're going to send their dog out after you, if they're going to throw water balloons at you. These are all things that I encountered. But interestingly, everyone was crying that day. Like, everyone was crying. And so finally, I asked somebody, someone answered the door, and they couldn't even speak to me. They're like... And I was like, it's probably not a good time to offer like a steps to Christ or like a piece above the store. Like this is probably not a good moment. So I asked her, I said, you know, what's going on? Are you okay? And she somehow managed in this broken way to communicate to me that Michael Jackson had just died. June 25, 2009. Some of you know, some of you are nodding like, yeah, I knew. I knew that's the date that Michael Jackson died. But I was looking at her like, oh my goodness, I thought something really like horrible had happened in her family. I didn't know what was going on. But it was the fact that she was this huge fan of Michael Jackson and he had just died. It's really interesting the lengths that people will go through to express their fandom. This is probably one of the most extreme ones that I saw when I was looking this week. I don't know this man's name, but he recently just paid $150,000 to get over 50 plastic surgeries in order to look like his idol, Kim Kardashian. And his plan is still to get increasingly uh, more surgeries. Here's another one. This man just spent uh, over a million Chilean pesos, and he has over 80 tattoos of Julia Roberts all over his body. And they're all different scenes from different movies, and he intends to get more tattoos before his time on Earth is up. And then, of course, for all of you sports fans, by the way, sports fans maybe are the craziest, because you can see grown men crying at sporting events who didn't even cry at their daughter's weddings. So people get really, really excited about sports. And this one I thought was really interesting. As you know, Kobe just played his last game, and in his last his farewell tour, these two young men actually flew from Italy to come to the U.S. They quit their job 
jobs in order to follow him around the country watching all of his last games. So here you see it went viral on Instagram. Um, they're looking for a place to stay because they have no money and like no hope of making any money here in the US while they're watching Kobe. So people get really, really, really excited about celebrities, about sports people, about different kinds of people that they just idolize and want to be like. In fact, it is actually a, a known psychological problem. They call it CWS, Celebrity Worship Syndrome. And that there are actually millions of people in the world, millions, actually millions of people in the world that struggle with this. The American Psychological Association, um, the man who's a spokesperson for there, he has a doctorate in psychology. And after many, many years of studying it, he says that the reason why people so struggle with this, celebrity worship syndrome and other kinds of things, is because it is innate in humans. It's in our DNA to want to worship something. And you don't have to be a believer to agree with that. Evolutionary biologists and anthropologists say that whether it's because um, they think it, it has evolved in us as a need to survive or to look at people who look successful and model our lives after them, or whether you're John the Revelator writing in Revelations, God, you created everything and it is for your pleasure that they exist and were created, faith-based or not, it is undeniable that we were created to worship. We were made to worship something. We were not made to be worshiped, but we were made to worship and honor something. In our church community in the last, in the last three weeks, we've been studying worship. Pastor Milton has been talking to us about who we worship. We worship the great I am. We looked at the story of the Israelites coming out of Egypt and God coming and saying, I am, I am unchanging, I am powerful, and I want to be with you. That's why we worship, because the great I am wants to be with us, meets with us here, even today in this place of meeting. And this is how we worship. We come not just to receive, but we come to give something, to give our sacrifices, our petitions, and our prayers. And yet, if you're anything like me, maybe you've struggled with the concept of worship in the past. Maybe it's because of the music. Maybe it's not the music that you want to hear. Or maybe music just isn't your thing. Maybe you're like, this is really great, but I just, I'm not really moved by music. Or maybe there's a certain style of preaching that you really like, and so uh, worship, you know, it, it never really speaks to your soul. Or maybe you do like to come to church, but it's in your own personal life as you study scripture and you read verses you've read all your life and you pray prayers that don't seem to get answered. And you're like, isn't there supposed to be something more? Has worship ever seemed to you dull and lifeless? Just a ritual that you have to keep doing because it's the right thing. We studied the story of the Israelites of God's people in the Old Testament. And I looked a thousand years later to see after God instructs his people on how to worship, how is it going? When Jesus comes to earth a thousand years later, how is worship going? And Jesus finds that their worship is sometimes how our worship is. That something has happened that it's no longer moving. It's no longer changing and transforming. That somehow life has been drained out of it and the people are asking, isn't there something more? So today we're going to be looking at that something more. What is that something more that is missing when it comes to us worshiping God? And we're going to look at some unlikely roadblocks of things that can separate us and stop us from worshiping God. So I invite you today to turn with me to Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 12. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 12, to, to see Jesus address a group of people, a specific person that represents a group of people who are struggling with worship. 
And this is what it says. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like the other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. So if you've heard this story, you know there's two people, Pharisee, tax collector, good, good guy, bad guy, that kind of thing. But it's really interesting if you think about the Pharisee, what he's saying. He actually ha- is saying these things as he has come to worship. He's not just randomly standing there and saying these things. He's come to the temple for the morning and evening sacrifices, which God commanded as a part of worship. And this is the prayer that he's offering along with his sacrifice. Thank you, God, that I am so good. And it's really interesting because he, he points out fasting. He fasts twice a week, even though the Jews were not required to fast except for on the Day of Atonement. So he and the rest of the Pharisees, who were the teachers of the law and the leaders, they decided that in order to be extra holy, to go above and beyond what's required, they would fast on, the, on our equivalent of Mondays and Thursdays. So they would fast twice a week, and they said, it's because I want to honor God. And they wouldn't just give a tenth of what they earned of their money, but they would tithe even their spices. So imagine, okay, you go to Bonds, you get, a, you get some time, right? And you're like, what is 10% of this? And you hand it to Pastor Milton. Here, Pastor Milton, this is for your dinner tonight because I'm super holy. I mean, they really went above and beyond. And I really shouldn't dog on them that much because the truth is, how, how easy is that to do? Like, really, to follow all 666 laws of, and, of the... Um, that God gave them, how easy is that to really do? And they really spent a lot of time trying to do these things. And so here the Pharisee comes with all his righteousness and and he says, thank you God that, that I do all of these good things. And in contrast, a tax collector, so someone who betrays his own people, someone who charges taxes and then more and nobody can say anything about it unless they wanna go to debtor's prison, and then gives it to the people who are the enemy of their Jewish people. A tax collector stands at a distance He doesn't even want to come to worship. If it was here modern day, they would stand outside the doors because he didn't feel worthy to come in. And he wouldn't even look to heaven. He just beat on his chest and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified, justified, which meant that God forgave him of his sin and counted him righteous that God forgave this man of his sin and counted him righteous. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. We've been talking about the sacrifices of worship and the things that we come to bring God. But is it possible that somehow we have thought that what God wants us to bring him is our good works, our trying harder, our devotion to reading the Bible and to coming to church, our perfect attendance record of coming to church? When what Jesus is saying here, what he really wants us to bring to him is our emptiness, our brokenness, our failures. You see, when the Jews would go to sacrifice a lamb, that lamb didn't represent their good deeds. That lamb represented their sins. That lamb represented their failures. And yet, sometimes it is so easy for us to think that the sacrifice that God wants from us is the 10% off the top of our paycheck. And it's interesting because when Jesus talks about this to the Pharisees, he says, you should have done the former without neglecting the latter. You should have tithed without neglecting what's really going on in your heart. 
But you see, when we read these stories, we've heard them so many times, and we've heard of Pharisees since we were little because they weren't fair, you see. I mean, we've heard of Pharisees so much that it's really hard for us to actually relate to that. None of us are going to look at that at that story and think to ourselves, oh, that's me, I'm the Pharisee. So in uh, the book that we're reading in our young adult class, our young and free class, John Ortberg writes in The Life You've Always Wanted, a book about spiritual disciplines, a few ways to figure out whether or not you're a Pharisee. So go ahead and evaluate yourself as we ask ourselves these questions. Am I a Pharisee? Am I the tax collector? Am, am I the Pharisee? And he says the first question we have to ask ourselves is, am I spiritually inauthentic? And the way to measure that is, am I preoccupied with appearing to be spiritual without really being concerned with what's going on in my heart? Because the truth is, we can hide things so well. We are so good at that. We can put on the smile, go to someone that we know we are angry at and we have not forgiven, and smile at them and be nice to them because we're appearing to be spiritual and nice people, people who are loving. But in our hearts, we have no intention of ever laying down our pride of forgiving or saying sorry. That's the difficulty. So am I spiritually authentic? Am I becoming judgmental, exclusive, or proud? Again, none of us would necessarily put ourselves in that category. So here's a secondary question. Do I compare myself with others? Because that's how we become judgmental, exclusive, or proud. The Pharisee was comparing himself with the tax collector, but really, our only example is Jesus. So if we're looking at anyone other than Jesus, we're starting to tread in Pharisee waters. And then he asks the question, am I becoming more approachable or less? And this one was kind of a surprise to me, because, you know, you never read that in the Bible necessarily, like, oh, be an approachable person. But where you do see that is in the life of Jesus. Jesus was the most approachable person. Kids, Pharisees, poor people, rich people, Samaritan, I mean, everybody was approaching Jesus. So in the same way, our lives, if we're living a life that is, is open and loving to others, we should be becoming more approachable. And then here's two that are maybe even a little bit more challenging and require some honesty from us. Am I growing weary of pursuing spiritual growth? This is what Stephen uh, Mosley says. Tragically, conventional religious goodness manages to be both intimidating and unchallenging at the same time. Intimidating because there's so many things to do and to get right, so many things you can get wrong, and unchallenging because it's not making a difference. Unchallenging because there's nothing, there's nothing to see there. We, we do all the right things. And if you've experienced this, especially if you've grown up in church, you go to church and you pay the tithe and you sing the songs and you read the Bible and you get your stars for the memory verse. And our hearts are still as messed up as they always have been. And we can't sleep at night because we are so tormented and troubled. And we don't even want to reach out to other people because we have nothing to give. It is both intimidating and unchallenging at the same time. Then he asks the question, am I measuring my spiritual life in superficial ways? Ellen White in Christ's Object Lessons talks about this specific scenario of the Pharisee and the publican, and she says, the religion of the Pharisee does not touch the soul. So is your faith, is your religion, is it touching your soul? Like all of who you are and where everything stems from, is it touching our souls? Is it changing who we are? Because if not, that's the religion of a Pharisee. She continues, he is not seeking God-likeness of character, a heart filled with love and mercy. He is satisfied with a religion that has only to do with outward life. 
So we have to ask ourselves, you and me, are we satisfied with a religion that just affects us on the outside, but has no power to change who we are inside? These are the questions that we have to ask when it comes to worship. And this isn't something that, that is new, a new struggle for God's people. This is what it says in Isaiah 29, verse 13. The Lord says, These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules they have been taught. So they're doing all the right things, but the spirit of their heart is not there. And Jesus says, that's not enough. That's not what I wanted of you. That's not what I asked. I didn't die for you and ask to be in a relationship with you and come meet with you so that you can do outward stuff and not love me in your heart. When would we ever settle for that in our relationships? Imagine our marriages if we said, oh, I'll do all the right things. We've talked about this before. I'll do all the right things, but I'm not going to love you. I don't love you, but I'll do everything I need to do. Or what we sometimes do with God. Um, you can have me Mondays, Wednesdays, fri Fridays, but Tuesdays, Thursdays, Saturdays. Where's Sunday? I don't know. You can have me half the week, but the other half is mine. So I'll be married to you half the time, but the other half I kind of want to myself. When would we ever accept that in a relationship? And yet God says, that's what you're giving me. You're giving me your outward devotion, but you're not giving me your heart. And yet, when it comes down to it, for most of us, the reason we do that is because that's all that we know. That is what we have been taught is spiritual. Think about the most the time in your life where you were the most spiritual. This is an, an interesting way to evaluate where we stand. When in your life were you most spiritual? If you're anything like me, you thought of a time where you were doing really well, like reading your Bible every day and really being involved in church, or maybe a time when you told someone about Jesus. I was thinking about that this week, and I remember I'm, I'm looking back at these couple years in college where I felt like I was doing really well. Um, and it was so shocking and painful when God pointed this out to me. When I thought about a time in my life where I was doing really well, I thought of these years in college, and in those years, um, I only ate sugar once a week so it was like 24 hours Friday night to Saturday so I was like yay Sabbath no sugar or sugar sugar today no sugar any other time of the week because my body is God's temple okay and not only that but you know I would spend at least two hours a day I kid you not doing my devotions I'd read my Bible for an hour and pray for an hour and I would fast on Thursdays just like the Pharisees Okay, And I was involved in church, I was doing internships, all these things, and I was looking back thinking, man, that is when I was spiritual. But I was shocked, brought to my knees just last week when God was like, no, it's not. Because in that time, you were spending so much time doing all your spiritual stuff, you had no time for other people. You had no room in your life to love the people I sent your way. You are not going to inconvenience your schedule of spiritual disciplines in order to help someone that needs help because why would you help them? They should just try harder. And God just shocked me, floored me with the realization that the time I thought I was doing the best, I was at my worst. 
And God had to shake my life and send all these things and people and circumstances to show me that true spirituality is what Jesus taught. Love for God that flows into love for others. When we allow ourselves to be inconvenienced by others, when we step outside of our comfortable zones into someone else's life where the unknown can happen, when we allow ourselves to lay down our pride and our walls of safety and instead of smiling and nodding at someone, actually go and apologize to them, to admit that we're wrong, to ask for forgiveness, that the sacrifice that God has always wanted has been our hearts and our lives and all of us, not just this list of stuff that we check off. Not that those things are bad. It's so important what Jesus says when he speaks to the Pharisees that you should have done the former without neglecting the latter. They're both important, but for some of us, the reason why worship is so dull and so stagnant is because it has become all about us and what we do and the good things we can bring to God when God is just saying, I just want your heart. I just want you to bring me your brokenness and your exhaustion and your questions and your failures and the sins that you can't overcome no matter how hard you try and the situations and areas in your heart that you know are not good and don't please me and you hide it from me. That's the sacrifice I want. The sacrifice of humility. That's the worship that God is asking of us. He asks us to stop thinking of worship as an outward thing, as a service that we attend or actions that we do, and gives us a new example of worship in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. He writes, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Your worship, my worship, is not to come and do stuff. It is to give God ourselves, not just parts of ourselves, not just one day of our week, but everything. Sometimes, you know, maybe you're like me and you had memorized this verse and never really thought of what it meant and need a fresh perspective. And when that happens to me, I like to look at the message paraphrase. And let's hear it again. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Do you know what part of your life God wants? Not your spiritual life. It's so funny how we think we have a spiritual life and a regular life. God wants your everyday ordinary life, going to sleep, waking up, eating, going to work, walking around, talking to people. That's the life that God says, will you give that to me? The dreams and the plans that you have for yourself, the wants and the desires that you have, God says, will you give that? That's what I want. That's what I, I, I want from you. I want to be able to be part of your entire life. So when it comes down to it, worship isn't about music and worship is not about preaching and it has nothing to do with all of our outward stuff, but worship is a condition of our hearts. We could say that worship is surrender. But you see, for most of us, surrender is not a really great word. And if you even read uh, Merriam-Webster's definition, it gets even worse, all right? So she says, uh, surrender is to agree to stop fighting, hiding, resisting, etc., because you know that you will not win or succeed. <laughs> all right? Nobody wants to do this. 
This past weekend, I was with the teens. Maybe this is one situation where we want to surrender because, and we have to think about what that really means because none of us are out there necessarily at this moment fighting battles and like waving white flags and yelling surrender. So what does surrender look like? This past weekend, I, I took the teens for our third paintball trip up in Lakeside. And there's this rule that they have that I really like. It's called the surrender rule. I like that rule. And the reason for that is because you, you, when you come close to somebody with a paintball gun and they're not facing you, their back is to you, there's no hope of them escaping from you. You yell surrender, all right, so that you don't have to shoot them at really close range because it hurts a lot, all right? So I like the surrender rule. But for some reason, our guy didn't teach the surrender rule this time. And so uh, we're just out there, like, shooting each other. And uh, we had a bunch of people who came for the first time. And we were in a particular scenario where I'm trying to guard the castle, and they're trying to storm the castle. It's a real castle. And all of a sudden, I hear a pop behind me, and my shoulder explodes in pain. Because I hadn't actually been planning on paintballing, but I should have known I would get pulled into it. I was like, oh, I did it the last two weeks. I'll just take a break this time. So I didn't bring a sweater. I was wearing, like, a thin T-shirt. And from literally... As close as Layla, I got shot in the shoulder, and it was debilitating pain. And I turned around, and I won't tell you who it is, I don't want to throw her under the bus. But she looks at me, and she's like, sorry. <laughs> and I'm like, what happened to surrender? Like, surrender me, surrender me. But then again, I really deserved it, because last year when they taught us the surrender rule, I panicked and I totally shot one of our guys like six times in the back <laughs> and then I yelled surrender afterwards <laughs> so I I shot him a bunch of times then I yelled surrender and he was like Pastor Sam that is not how surrender works <laughs> so there's this thing about surrender right that when you're in the corner standing in the castle and someone creeps up in the window behind you and they yell surrender because there is no way you're going to get away from them that's typically what we think of when we think of surrender and when we think of god that way the reality is we sometimes think of surrender to god this way too i felt it i've heard it so many times well i don't have a choice but to surrender to god because what other choice do i have God's going to do as well anyways, so what does it even matter if I surrender? But you see, this is not the surrender that Scripture is talking about. It's not like, oh, give in to God because like he's God and he'll stomp on you. That's not the kind of surrender that Scripture means. This is the kind of surrender that Scripture is talking about. It's the act of entrusting our lives to God's leadership and authority. If you look at that first verse, Romans 12, verse 1, it's to offer to offer your lives as a living sacrifice. And what that means is to say, God, there are things that I think I know and ways that I think are best for my life. But when it comes down to it, my life belongs to yours. So if your word says something that my life isn't lining up with, if there is some belief that I hold that is contrary to your scripture, I'm not going to put my thoughts and what I think is, is right to me above what your word says. I submit and surrender my life to you and to what you want. And scripture says that this is our spiritual act of worship. And if you notice, this isn't something that you just do once. This is something that we have to do every single day. Paul says, I die daily. And sometimes it feels like death, doesn't it? It totally feels like that. Sometimes people say, oh, surrender to God, and like everything's going to go well. No. We talked about this at Christmas. Surrender typically leads to chaos, right? And then chaos, in the midst of the chaos, God gives us peace. 
the surrender is going to be difficult because it's actually warfare against our self-centered nature. The surrender is, is us fighting against what we think that we want. But in college, I, I read this book called Confessions by St. Augustine, and a statement that he made continues to ring in my mind. He says, God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in you. Our hearts are restless until we find our rest in you. That while, yes, it may be difficult, and yes, surrender is uncomfortable, we will never be at rest until we are in proper position to our Father, until we have decided that he is the God of our lives, and we are not. And this is something we have to do so many times. A good signal that it's, it's probably a moment to just surrender to God is when we start to feel anxiety. Anxiety and feeling overwhelmed and everything's on our shoulders. That is a good sign that we've stepped into God's shoes. So when we think of situation and situations in our lives that we have to make work out, God says, no, you don't. You surrender to me. But the prayer that we have to pray is not, God, give me what I want. The prayer that God invites us to pray is, God, your will be done. Whatever you want from this, even if it's not what I want, even if I would plan it differently, even if I would make different choices for myself, and it's painful and it's difficult, and I don't understand why, your will be done. The greatest words of worship are not, God, thank you for. The greatest words of worship is, thy will be done. That is the worship that God asks from us and invites us to every day is to surrender to him, worship him by letting his will be done, inviting his will be done to be done, following his will when he reveals it to us in all areas of our lives. A.W. Tozer expresses how difficult it is to surrender. He says, the reason why many are still troubled, still seeking, still making little forward progress is because they haven't yet come to the end of themselves. We're still trying to give orders and interfering with God's work within us. We're still full of ourselves. We're still full of the things we want to bring to God and the things we wish were true and the voices that we're hearing, the things we're believing. So what do we do? What do we do when we find ourselves full of ourselves? How can we fix that? Do we just try harder? I love what Ellen White says here again um, in Christ's Object Lessons. She says, but no man or woman can empty himself of self. We can only consent for Christ to accomplish the work. Then the language of the soul will be, Lord, take my heart, for I cannot give it. It is thy property. Keep it pure, for I cannot keep it for thee. Save me in spite of myself, my weak, unchristlike self. Mold me, fashion me, raise me into a pure and holy atmosphere where the rich current of thy love can flow through my soul. She says, it is not for us to empty ourselves, only to come and say, God, take my heart because I'm too weak to hand it over. Keep my heart pure because I cannot keep it pure for you. To come to God and say, God, I am not able, but you are. This is what transformation is. Transformation is not when we beat ourselves and guilt ourselves and try ourselves into doing all the right things. Transformation is when we surrender ourselves to God and he changes us. And then we're not just doing the right stuff, but we actually want to. That God gives us to will and to act according to his good purpose. 
that he changes us so much that we're actually like him. So when it comes the time to do the right things, that it comes from a heart of desire and a heart of worship. Don't you want that? Don't you want the kind of life and faith and worship where God is actually changing us? Where we can look back and say, it's different. And it's not because of me and my hard work. It's because of God. It's because of his power and his presence and his strength. And that's what Romans 12 verse 2, just the very next verse says is, we surrender and worship and then we let God transform us into new people by changing the way we think. So we surrender. Surrender leads to transformation. And after transformation, only then can we learn to know God's will for us, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Sometimes we come to God and we just want to know his will so we don't have to take responsibility for the choices we make. And God says, no, surrender to me. Give me all of you. And then I will transform you. And then you will know my will. And that's when life stops being dull and boring and unimaginative and worship stops being a ritual and a routine. It becomes something that changes us forever. The heart of worship is surrender. If we sing the songs and do the stuff and read the book and all those things that we do without a heart of surrender, it is not worship. It's not, it's just a thing that we're doing. The heart of worship is surrender. And so if there is power, right, the power of surrender is that God can transform us, then imagine what might corporate worship look like? What might, might it look like if corporately we came together here to church, not just to hope that they play the song we like or hope that, you know, the pastor yells and makes us like feel something inside. What if we came to surrender? What if we came to give God our emptiness and our brokenness? What if we came to give God all that we have and submit and surrender our lives to him together to encourage and affirm one another in doing that? What might happen? Here at church, uh, your leadership and, and a decision that, uh, that we've made amongst ourselves and invite you to make as well is to believe and to accept what God says in scripture that corporate worship is vital to the life of a thriving believer and that there is power, conviction, and grace available when we come together as a community to submit and surrender to God's authority. Not when we come together as a community to like sit and be like, oh, let me out for lunch. Not when we come together as a community just to sit. That the power, conviction, and grace that is available comes when we come here to meet with God as he has promised, like Pastor Milton has been teaching us. That God keeps his promise and we come and we give him not all our good stuff, but all our bad stuff too. And yet it's so easy for corporate worship to get all messed up, isn't it? There's, it's so easy to get distracted and to put our desires above, above worshiping God. Matt Redman, who's a British Christian worship leader, once told of a time where in his church where he was leading worship, this huge church, they allowed all the details of worship to get in the way of God. They somehow became obsessed with uh, the musicians being perfect, and so they weren't allowing people to play. And they became obsessed with the graphics, and they spent tons of time doing that, and they spent all this time rehearsing, but somehow the heart of their worship had gone cold. And so one day he was shocked. His lead pastor showed up and said, that's enough. No more bands, no more graphics, no more sound system. We're just gonna come to church and see what songs our hearts know. 
see what true offerings we have to bring to God. And for months, it was the most awkward thing ever. They said they weren't singing, nobody was, like everyone felt really uncomfortable and it was really strange. But then he said something really interesting. He said, after a while, it seemed like the songs of our hearts had caught up with the songs of our lips that the songs and the praises they were bringing to God were finally at the same place, at the same level as the songs they had been singing to God. And as a result of that, he wrote the song Heart of Worship that you probably many of you know. And it goes, when the music fades and all is stripped away and I simply come, longing just to bring something that's of worth that will bless your heart. I'll bring you more than a song, for a song in itself is not what you have required. You search much deeper within. Through the way things appear, you're looking into my heart. And this is what God says. I see you. I'm searching much deeper than the way things appear to others and to you. I'm looking into your heart. Will you surrender your heart to me? The persistent danger when it comes to worship is that the songs of our lips will exceed the songs of our hearts. And that is when we become Pharisees. But as the band comes forward, I invite you to practice God's antidote to this, to practice another way of worship, which is instead of coming and doing the thing, to actually turn over your heart to God, not just today, but every day. To actually say, God, I trust you and I invite you to be in charge. And to stop saying, my will be done, God. Help me to do my will. But to turn to him and say, God, whatever you ask, no matter what it costs, no matter how hard it is, how much it hurts, or how much it's something I don't want, my prayer of worship and surrender to you is your will be done in my life as it is done in heaven.